Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Supervalue Insurance. Offering sound advice for your car, home and travel insurance needs. Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Supervalue Insurance. Offering sound advice for your car, home and travel insurance needs. Hello there and welcome to our New Year's Eve show. I hope you had a great 2023 and that you're looking forward to all that 2024 might bring. This morning I'm going to bring you some of the highlights from interviews featured on our show this year, including conversations with Brendan Gleeson, Deepak Chopra, Sandy Kelly, John Clark and Pat Jennings. So as we face into 2024 and the start of new resolutions, let's remind ourselves of a conversation I had with wellness expert Deepak Chopra about how we can deal better with stress and how mindfulness and meditation are a key part of that. Meditation has a way of bringing out stresses that have been hiding in the secret passages in the dark alleys of and the ghost-filled attics of your mind. And when you suddenly release them, there's a sense of release, a sense of relief. The remarkable thing about you, of course, is everyone today is aware of mindfulness and wellness and minding our mind. But you were doing that donkeys years ago. I mean, how did you first get into this area? I was a resident uh, in medicine in the Boston area and I was actually quite burnt out myself. Uh, This is now a long time ago. I was maybe late 20s, but I was smoking heavily. I used to drink, uh, at least on weekends, quite heavily. And, uh, you know, one day I put a pacemaker in a patient, put him on a ventilator and went outside the hospital to smoke a cigarette. And I felt totally disgusted, threw it away and never touched alcohol after that. And when you define wellness, what do you actually mean by wellness? I'm conscious of people listening this morning. Probably many of them are quite tired. They might have children running around. Like, what is wellness? Well, wellness and well-being are two different things. Wellness is probably what you get when you get an evaluation. What's your cholesterol level? What's your blood pressure? How's your immune system functioning, etc., etc. Well-being is a state of being or consciousness where you spontaneously experience a joyful, energetic body, loving, compassionate heart, a reflective, alert mind, and most importantly, lightness of being. No stress whatsoever. And I hear everyone laughing. How do you do that in your life? How do you get a stress-free life? Well, I realized a long time ago there's only two choices. One is resistance to existence and the other is what we call flow or peak performance or peak living. And resistance to existence comes from four illusions. The first illusion is the illusion of predictability. You know, I was supposed to get here day before yesterday in the morning. Every flight that I booked got cancelled. Ultimately, actually, it was 24 hours late. But I had already accepted unpredictability as the nature of existence. So the first illusion is predictability. There's no such thing. Even the weather, you can predict 
likelihood, but not certainty. Uh, traffic jams the same way, um, and illness the same way, or life the same way, relationships the same way. Once you realize that predictability is an illusion, the second realization is control is an illusion. There's no such thing because everything has so many factors influencing every incident is literally a conspiracy of improbabilities. So control is an illusion. The third thing is identity is an illusion. There's no fixed identity. Say, who's Deepak? Well, which Deepak do you mean? The child, the teenager, the adult, all the way to dusty death. And in fact, identity is constantly transforming. If it didn't, you'd be worried. And if your child didn't grow up to be a teenager or your teenager didn't grow up to be an adult, you'd be worried. So there's no such thing as a fixed identity. And finally, there's no such thing as time. That's also an illusion. Once you recognize these are illusions, you don't resist what's happening right now. You go with the flow. But when you say there's no such thing as time, hmm? what do you mean by that? Time is the internal dialogue of the ego. So there's something called clock time and there's something called perceived or experienced time. We say, I'm running out of time. When people say that, their heart rate speeds up, their blood pressure goes up. If they have all the time in the world, everything is different. If they fall in love, time doesn't exist. So time, as Einstein showed, in another way, is relative. It, uh, it depends. In his mathematics, it depends, metaphorically speaking, it's very interesting, on the speed of the observer. You know, So if you're going at the speed of light, there's no time. If you're near a black hole, time slows down. If you enter the singularity, there's no time. So time is a human construct for how we experience life, which is really cyclical and circular. If you look at some traditional shamanic traditions and even people who had psychedelic experiences, they have a more fractal, holographic, holomovement rendering of time, which is universal. And it's not Greenwich Mean Time. That's a colonial uh, history. We don't say Bot Botswana Mean Time or Bangladesh Mean Time. We say Greenwich Mean Time. We made it up, just like yeah, we made yeah. up everything. Latitude, longitude, money, Wall Street. These are human constructs. They're not fundamental reality. Fundamental reality, there's no time. Wellness expert Deepak Chopra there, who came into studio when he was receiving an award from IFTA, the Irish Film and Television Academy. Now, Cork actor Eileen Walsh was in the Marina Carr play Girl on an Altar when she came in to talk to me. She told me about her path into acting and about how influential her sister Catherine was in her career choice. So Catherine did drama in secondary school and she was a, a fabulous every year in the school play with my sister Bernadette as well, the pair of them. Um, but then Catherine left to go to Dublin and she joined National Youth Theatre. And one of the weekends that she came back down, she just caught me and threw me into Saturday morning drama <laughs> classes. And she was like, that's where you need to be. And she was right. And that's where I kind of found my tribe, I guess. I was always writing. Mm. I loved English. I loved poetry. And, you know, you can see all that in, in my work now. You know, it's like eating and drinking the kind of lyricism. 
she was so great and so right to do that for you, to put you into that class. But is it true you both played the same role in Eugene O'Brien's Eden? How did that come about? Yeah. So uh, Catherine played the part originally that uh, Conor McPherson directed opposite Don Witcherly. And then when it came to make the film, the producers, I think, got in touch with Catherine and said, look, just so you know, heads up, that we are going to go younger on the role, yeah. uh, which obviously is a heartbreak for anybody who produces the role originally. And Catherine, as ever, with her amazing, huge heart of gold, phoned me and went, they're going younger. You better get it. <laughs> Everyone wants a sister like, like Catherine. She's amazing. <laughs> she's amazing. Um, and so, yeah, for me to get to play it with Declan Rex directing and Aidan Kelly opposite was a gift, you know, and getting to go to Tribeca and winning the award there. And yeah. like, it was really beautiful, tender moments of a play that we as a family knew so well because of Catherine and I know you said yourself and Catherine you both do a mean line in lonely women like are you especially drawn to darker complex characters um I think even in even in the comedy that I do there is a loneliness there I think for all of us uh what I love about acting is the fragility that we get to show and that we get to share with each other and loneliness is our is one of our biggest fears, mm. right? We're afraid of being early for the date. You're afraid of, you know, what if, you know, you've got lunchtime on your own? Yeah. And it's exploring that moment for me, I find interesting because it's that moment where you choose to be brave and step outside and talk to somebody else. Or it's that little bridging moment. Mm. That's where the drama is for me. Um, and I suppose loneliness for all of us is is a bridge you know mm. it's just that crossing point so yeah I think we do we both uh, can do a mean line in it and actually it's a huge issue I know even from prime time doing serious was like loneliness is one of the biggest problems and issues for so many people in Ireland particularly older people yeah yeah, I, weirdly, I just got a message on my phone today from my lovely friend in London and she said she was walking along Kensal Rise, a very yeah. fancy little I know. area, <laughs> and this woman leant out the window and said, I need some margarine. And uh, Ashling said, oh, I have to go to my doctor's appointment. And the woman was like, no, I need the margarine. <laughs> so Ashling left me a message of her going to the shop and coming back and saying, I could only get a certain type, <laughs> not the one you were looking for. But it's like that, that the woman didn't need it. She just wanted somebody to come back and chat to her. Yeah. And I love that brief moments of humanity and, and Ashling being divine and yeah. getting it and bringing it back. And that pound fifteen spent <laughs> means so much more, you know, to that woman. That's a beautiful story. <laughs> And while you might be drawn to, you know, lonely roles or loveless marriages on stage and screen, your own situation couldn't be happier. I gather your husband, Stuart, is a hopeless romantic. Oh, my God. Stuart is incredibly romantic and uh, I'm not. So it's a wonderful balance for a relationship. I get things and he doesn't. <laughs> uh, he's very thoughtful and creative and uh, spends a lot of time preparing, like for press nights. Yeah. Everything will evolve around getting something to do with the play uh, and a broken leg. So I'll get little presents of little ceramic boys with with a little bird on their hand but he'll have broken the ceramic leg and refixed it with the cast you know it's that kind of thing so girl on an altar he made an altar with a crucifix at the top but you pulled the crucifix and out came a little girl from the altar with a broken leg <laughs> and why so, the broken leg well because that's what you say in theater isn't it break a leg oh 
yeah. right. I'm definitely being a bit I slow know, here. Right. So yeah, he does loads of things. He did one where he sent me, um, he had no time, he said, and he just passed in a, a, a bag of um, jelly babies. And I was like, that's weird. But anyway, me and the cast, we all loved the jelly babies and that was all great. And at the end, he was like, did you eat them all? And I said, yeah, yeah, no, everybody had them. And he said, did you not notice? He had opened the pack, painted each individual with a, with a little cast. A little broken leg on each jelly baby. But anyway, sure, I'd eaten it all. I'm so ungrateful. He's utterly unique. I know. The Where world. did you meet him? Uh, during Disco Pigs. I had to get my hair cut and uh, he was a barber. He had a barber shop around the corner from the Traverse Theatre. So Enda and I went and uh, it was um, kind of love at first sight, I think, for both of us. And then I brought Enda back the following week to meet him again. Enda Walsh. Enda Walsh. And Enda got a terrible haircut. So Enda had to wear a hat <laughs> from for the Stuart. rest of the festival. Yes. <laughs> Stuart was so busy talking to me that he gave Enda a terrible haircut. But Enda went on to meet his missus also during that isn't that uh, amazing? Time in yeah. Edinburgh, yeah. Eileen Walsh there speaking about her very thoughtful husband, Stuart. Well, back in April, actor Brendan Gleeson spoke to me about his work for St. Francis Hospice. And while we were chatting, he also told me about the madness of Oscar season for the Banshees of Inishirin crew. Well, it's it was a bit of a roller coaster. The actual night itself, by the time it came around, was fantastic. Uh, I was in a great kind of a headspace myself. Um, Mary had finally conceded to actually being pushed onto the red carpet. Yeah. She was very, very reluctant. And at one stage, she said she'd take one photograph. And I think that was at the BAFTAs or something. And uh, <laughs> she was pushed out into a bank of photographs and kind of skedaddled out as quickly as she could. But for the Oscars, she decided to think we have a new grandson since the 12th of December. Oh, so she decided that uh, she wanted some pictorial evidence so she actually arrived no she's she did she was she looked great and the whole thing was very celebratory I I kind of from my personal point of view I kind of knew I was out of the running so there was less pressure about that you have to kind of prep just in case but how did you know that uh, I just the zeitgeist I just knew the way that the things had moved and it's an odd process really it's everybody says it but it's hard to believe if you're on the outside, but the nomination is the thing, really. Yeah. Uh, and I have to say, the nomination was was a real thrill. It was fantastic, and especially when we got so many, it meant that we were there as a kind of group of people. Yeah, it was incredible. Uh, it was fantastic, and even the fact that we didn't pick up anything, you know, the few Irish that did were was, were celebrated communally, and we were all there for each other in terms of it's it's a bizarre occasion um you know i wouldn't sit through the oscars watching it to be honest with you i Would wouldn't you switch not? it on no but being there was one of the brilliant memories and it, it was very celebratory and it was i was sitting beside colin and his young lad henry yeah. uh, who's an absolute dote mm. yeah and Kerry is down there well, like and barry and we're sort of all in there in the mix we were sitting in the front row. <laughs> I bro- broke out and wore a goldy jacket because I said, I'm going home with some kind of gold, if, unless I lose my jacket. But it was just, it was brilliantly celebratory in the sense that we were right up in front of the stage and Rihanna and um, the Natu Natu, is that, is that what, it was, what the name of the song was called? The Indian Wonder yeah. from the Indian musical. That was absolutely stunning, I, right in front of it. The live show itself, which I always felt, geez, it's about four hours long. You know, I, I just... And the actual live show was stunning. You know, um, obviously Lady Gaga then came out yeah. in a T-shirt. It was hilarious. <laughs> she's in the, the movie I was doing at the time. 
the Joker. So I knew her. Yeah. I, I had met her, known her on set. So we said hello, but she was in this statuesque creation. I don't know, a Dior or somebody. Uh, and she looked, oh, absolutely. It was an installation of what she had. <laughs> and I'd seen her on the way in and we said hello and go, how it was going and all that stuff. And then I went in and she came out, which I thought was brilliant. She came out in a T-shirt, kind of very grungy. And what I took from it, whether it's true or not, I kind of felt that she was less Lady Gaga and more the actor. And she was among her peers. So I think what she wanted to do was deconstruct the Lady Gaga element mm. and be quite simple. And being so close, I mean, she's a stunning performer. Yeah. And paired down, being in the front seat, it doesn't get an awful lot better. We had a fantastic night, really had a fantastic night. And there was something, there was something properly generous in the room that, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, we know all the tears and all that stuff. Some of it is genuine and then some of it is just sort of over, done to me over, over all of these award ceremonies. But I do think that there's a kind of an emotion just to explain it to people that I think people are genuinely overwhelmed when they mm-hmm. get in front of there. You're, they're looking out at, at this massive auditorium, but also they know they're talking to, I don't know, what is it, a billion people or yeah. something? I don't know who I was. At least, no doubt. Yeah, yeah and, and I do think it becomes, it becomes quite overwhelming, really, for a lot of people and quite emotional. The, the feeling in the room was very different to what I would have seen from the outside of it. It just... You know, and it was the same with the BAFTAs, but there was a kind of a generosity in the room. And it really did overcome any sense of flatness when you don't win or when people don't be signed. I really hoped Kerry would win, obviously Colin, people mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, Martin was weird that Martin didn't get anything out of it. But Kerry in particular, I thought, if she's at that point in her career where, I, I think it's happened anyway, once the nomination happens, this would, would the stone needed to be lifted on Kerry. Yeah, Connelly. Kerry Connelly. She's, she's, she's a stunning Amazing, actress. yeah. She is, really. And then the fact that it was such a big Irish representation, it was just, it was fantastic. I think everyone who was watching as well felt so proud. I think some of them was about 25% of the nominees were actually Irish. Now, a lot of them were the Banshees. But also just seeing yourselves and Colin, because you like you get on so well, don't you? I was going to say do, you love yeah, each other, no. but you really do. You yeah, are close. Yeah, we do. Like, it's, it's, it's always been easy. Like he's, he's somebody that I have huge admiration for in the way that mm-hmm. he saw light and dark in his life. And he chose the light with a very, very unashamed way mm-hmm. he just made a decision and followed it and he's a huge heart and I think it takes real bravery to actually make that kind of decision mm-hmm. so from the time I met him you know there's a degree of sensitivity and it's great but also he's you know he's a canat as they say <laughs> that there's a bit of development in him but just the choices that he made full of generosity of spirit Mm. and it's just we could do a lot more of it in the world basically The one and only Brendan Gleeson We'll take a break Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1 sponsored by Super Value Insurance Offering sound advice for your car, home and travel insurance needs Tweet at Miriam O'Call Welcome back to this New Year's Eve special Today we're featuring highlights from our show in 2023 now, singer Sandy Kelly has had a long career in music, but she also had an unusual start to life as a showman's daughter and life on the road led to interesting times. 
When people ask me how I decided to be in show business, I laugh really because I wasn't in a cot in the caravan. I was in a drawer because they couldn't afford a cot. And if they needed a baby for a play or a sketch or something, I was snatched from the drawer and brought out onto the stage. But my earliest memories would be from the age of three. I can remember from three years of age, singing every night. Uh, My grandfather would... Uh, take great pride in teaching me how to tap dance and sing. Uh, if, they, if they needed a child, I'd be in the play. And I also assisted my uncle, who was a magician and a hypnotist. So I was like a sponge, really. Children are like sponges. So what a great way to learn my craft, really. From the age of three, it was amazing. But he, your granddad, is this right? He met your grandmother in Belfast. Mm-hmm. He was a Protestant. Mm-hmm. He was 20 years older. He was married. She was a Catholic with an incredible voice and they eloped. They eloped and um, I found out much later in life that he was already married with the family. And I suppose, um, she, as you said, she was 16 and because they eloped across the border, back then, that you know, they could never be found. And years later, I was singing in the Ulster Hall uh, after I had my TV series and stuff. Yeah. And um, some cousins arrived, Maggie's, my, my granny's cousins, and they brought some photographs of her and they were asking me all those years later what happened to her. And only then I was able to tell her where her grave was in Kilkenny, in Clara, outside Kilkenny, and what had happened to her. And, you know, she died in her 50s. She'd had eight children. Um, he had promised her stardom and that she would sing on the stages of the world. But she ended up in a small caravan with eight children and a very wow. tough life, really. Where did your mum and dad meet? Oh, gosh. Much to to my grandmother's dismay, um, Dusky Dan's roadshow rolled into Ballantour in County Sligo. And that was a great thing. Of course, the posters would go up. People didn't have television. And so if the show was coming to town, that was very glamorous. So the show came to town and the man who owned the ball alley, the local ball alley, Mel Lane was his name, um, he got two free tickets for every show for giving them the ball alley. And my mother was his best friend. And my mother, even though I say so myself, was a very pretty woman. And of course, her Mel, Mel and herself had front seats every night. My dad threw the glad eye on her. She didn't object. And they met up every night after the show. And my grandmother, although she was poor herself, was absolutely mortified that my mother was seeing the showman and uh, uh, talking about going away with the show crowd, as she used to call it. And my grandmother, to the day she died, she was 106 when she died. She never forgave my father for marrying my mother. And I think when I went to live with her as almost nine years of age uh, to go to school, she thought I had bad blood in me too. So she did her best to to make a real person out of me as well and knock the singing and the show business out of me. How did your own mum adapt to life on the road? I mean, I know you were living in very small, simple wooden caravans. You didn't really have much, did you, No, it was a very small space. Everybody made their own caravan. I remember my father making uh, a caravan when we were sort of upgrading. And um, my mother had to adapt because if, first of all, Dusky Dan, my grandfather, was not pleased either that my father married uh, a civilian, if you like, because they were expected to marry within their own culture Mm. so that somebody could bring something to the show. And my mother had to learn very quick to be part of the show. So she sang, she learned how to sing and she played clarinet, not very well. And she would take, because she was pretty, she would go on stage for the chorus and take part in plays and stuff like that. But you had to, everybody had to earn their crust if you were on the show. Did you go to school? I mean, you said to me earlier, like you were singing from the age of three. I mean, 
Did you go to school? What did the other children make of you? What was that like? My mother taught, my mother had, um, you know, national school education. And of course, you know, she was bright. She could read, write and she was, you know, fairly well educated for that time. Mm. And so she taught me every day. So in, in that respect, I could read and write. I stood beside my grandfather on the door so I could count money at a very early age. Um, but when we could, I used to go to school in each particular town we were. And what did people make of me? They expected me to entertain them. I would arrive at the school and straight away, uh, much as I still do today, uh, my way of getting along with people was to entertain them, even at that age. And that's what I did, sing and dance. You also say in the book that you never really felt that sense of belonging. Do you think that was because, Sandy, of the constant travelling? Was there a bit of snobbery about you being show people as such, do you think? Yeah, I mean, we, we led a nomadic life and, you know, for the most part, when you... Here's my memory of it. Mm. When I was on the stage as a child, I would look down at a sea of smiling faces and clapping hands and adoration, you know, with this cute girl um, singing and dancing. But when you weren't on the stage, if you went to the local shop, you know, in a particular town, or you were the, the show people or you were mm. the show girl or the showman's daughter, which was something I used to hear, you know. And I remember when I went to live in Ballantore, I used to, you'd hear like, oh, she's a showman's daughter. Or, you know, and I never quite knew mm. what to make of that. And I remember going to my grandmother, she had a trunk that she brought back from America that she dare not even go near. And so she was in town one day and I went into the trunk to look for my birth certificate. It was a weird, at a young age, nine years of age. And I found it and it said my name and details of when I was born and father's occupation, showman. And then in that breath, I was able to make sense of it. I was the showman's daughter. And from then on in, I was very proud of it. That was Sandy Kelly telling me about her extraordinary childhood. Now, John Clark wrote a remarkable book about his life with broadcaster Marion Finucane and about her death in January 2020 and how it impacted on him. He spoke to me about how he's doing now. If you live with someone for 40 years and share nearly everything, you know, uh, and suddenly it stops, you know, uh, you're cast adrift. I wouldn't be sitting here if she was still alive, I can tell you that. Uh, secondly, I can tell you I wouldn't have written a book if she was still alive. So it just changed my whole life from the most simple things in the world to the most complex. I sat down about six months after she died and I said, I've got to do something that will occupy me until I die. So I decided with a swamp out in the land I live on that I would build a Zen Buddhist garden based on a 16th century Japanese model. And everybody said, oh, you're building the garden for Marion. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm building it because of Marion. Because if I was to say to Marion when she retired and we all went off into the sunset, that I'm thinking of building Zen Buddhist garden and it's going to take 40 years for phase one uh, she might have been ringing the men in the white coats you know so I do that I wrote a book Why did you write it John? And do you think Marion if she was sitting here with us now would be surprised that you've written a book? 
Totally. If she was alive, I would never have written the book. She had this thing for secrecy. You mean, I know I've known you or mm. watched you or listened to you for a good few years mm. now. I don't know you from a hole in the wall. <laughs> you know, I would have thought the public were very much the same. With Marion, she went out of her way to protect her family, but actually it was to protect her uh, of whatever life she lived. The lovely thing is you had three sons from your first marriage. You're really close to them. Then you and Marion had a mm. boy and a girl. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, anyone who knows Marion knew that she lost her little girl to yeah. cancer, your little girl too. And it was something one never really, well, I felt I would never speak to Marion about it because yeah. it was well, it was so private. It yeah. was so painful. You write very movingly, John, in the book about Sinead. Did you find that difficult to do? And why did you decide to do that? No. No. Mm. Um, Sinead's death was, from my perspective on Marion's, and Sinead's, of course, was a tragedy, you know. And she got uh, leukaemia. How old was she, John? Nine. Strange, for some bizarre reason, I was the only one that sort of matched her on a bone marrow transplant. So I just saw a bottom for a while, went into recovery, and suddenly it all swept back again. It used to move between one type and another type. On the way home once from Mayo, we spent a lot of time down there, she said, I have that pain back in my leg again. And we knew that this was the return. She took up life with us, and one day she wanted to be a barman. The local pub accommodated her. They had a special stool so she could pull pints. Uh, she got her wages at the end of the week. She learned to ride a pony. She learned to do all the normal things. As you watched her, just sinking down, down, down. And then the hospice movement swung in. And uh, she died in my arms, strange enough. It was a bad time. What about yourself? How do you deal with something like that? I mean... Well, I had this thing that I... Her grave is about 100 yards from the house. And uh, and I drive by it every day. And so I can always shout, Hello, Sinead, how are you today? And what's happening? And I talk about whatever I'm doing. And I don't know when it started or how it started, but that's what I used to do. And then Marion is buried beside her and... Uh, I just don't talk. Somehow, I'm closed out. I can't answer that. I would love to, but I, I just don't know the answer. Is it because they're back together or something? They're... I have explored it endlessly, <laughs> you know. Why wouldn't I talk to the two people I love, you know? They're beside me. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. There could be a bit of that too. Maybe I'm annoyed because they left. The rules are I'm supposed to die first, you know. 
it didn't work out that way, you know. I just don't know. But from what was a pleasure, uh, talking to my daughter, stupid stuff, has now become some sort of a burden. This bit I don't understand either. That was John Clark, husband of the late Marion Finucane. We'll take a break. Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Supervalue Insurance. For car, home and travel insurance that ticks all the boxes. Now that's sound. Tweet at Miriam O'Call. Welcome back. Now, in September, comedian Al Porter spoke to me about his comedy circuit comeback six years after he was accused of inappropriate sexual behaviour. Al spoke to me about the mistakes he made in his 20s. Now I can look back and say people expected better of me at that time in my life and they had every, every right to expect better of me. I wish I had done things differently and I wish I had been a better colleague, a better friend. I wish that I had been just an all-round better person. And I think that it's no one factor that caused everything to fall apart as it did. Um, It's a combination of factors, as you say, you know, you can't blame youth or you can't blame fame or money or, or drink or anything else. Those are contributing factors to one big ego one massive self-centred ego that was at the heart of all of that back then. And uh, I suppose that's that's where I've tried to emphasise over time that I blame myself. And, you know, that's you don't blame something, as you say, you blame yourself. And you go, I'm at the heart of this. And ultimately, the book stops with me. I'm responsible to my past. Uh, I'm also responsible to my my present and my future. And I I was the reason that everything fell apart. I mean, it's it's not easy listening. Obviously, when when you hear you describe how well things were going, and then you hear the things that people said, and it, it's uncomfortable. But that's my responsibility. I have to live with that discomfort. I do live with that discomfort every day, and I have to live with that reality. And when you now, you're still only 30, but when you look back on your younger self, how would you describe your younger self? I think I was, I kind of felt like I'd been shot out of a cannonball out of out of school. And in school, I had been uh, a bit of a swath. And um, I, I was in school in Tallinn. I was very focused on my grades and going to college and I didn't drink and I had yet to come out. And then suddenly when I dropped out of college within a couple of weeks, I was a comedian and I was, you know, 19 years old and I'd come out of the closet and I discovered alcohol. And it's not until years later that I could look back and go, well, actually, my use of alcohol was a serious misuse of alcohol and a chronic abuse of alcohol. And uh, at the time, it was a runaway train. And uh, in a way, you said, how would you describe yourself? But a bit of a runaway train, a bit of a bull in a china shop, excitedly going after the next gig and the next party and burning the candle at both ends. And and I think the the most obvious flaw and one of the most central flaws is very unself-aware. Very unself-aware. I thought I had it all figured out. And uh, and I didn't. I didn't 
I didn't have my my stuff together. I wasn't I was actually much more all over the place than I thought I was. And unfortunately, because of that, I let a lot of people down. You know, I I let down the people that I was working with. I let down my friends, my family. I let down the people that were supporting me and coming to my shows who now I'm kind of in the process of trying to regain people's trust and try to say, well, I've learned a lot of lessons and I've taken everything that was said on board. And uh, over the last six years, I've been on a process of trying to change as a person and grow up. I think I would have grown up anyway between 24 to 30, but to really grow up and make necessary change. And, And in a way, one thing that I say to people is part of that change and evolution it deepens over time and it deepens and and I say things now I wouldn't have said two years ago when I wrote an article about this or I wouldn't have said it two years before that when I was in the thick of it. Um, so your your evolution as a person deepens and, and changes over time. But even that one weekend in November 2017, there was an instant change because to go back to your question of how would you describe yourself, I think ignorant is a good word. You know, I was blinkered. In that one weekend was the end of ignorance. It was like a snap to reality because the minute I read those headlines and I heard what people had to say about me, I went, oh, okay, I'm not necessarily who I think I am. And I'm definitely not being uh, spoken about here the way I would want to be spoken about and career wasn't the first thing in my head and that's why it was very easy to walk away from the radio, the TV, the newspapers, heartbreaking to leave all of your work that you love doing but also a quick decision to make because the most important thing was how can I now, now that there is this snap to reality, how can I do better and how can I make sure nobody ever talks about me like that again? That was comedian Al Porter. Now, Nicola Hanny is an extraordinary woman who told me about the coercive control she suffered at the hands of former Garda Paul Moody. He was sentenced to three years and three months for his campaign against Nicola. But when they met first, he didn't show any signs of the control that would become evident later. That's right, we did. Yeah, we met on a dating app, yeah. Tell me about that. I actually remember getting... uh, the first message, I was in Castleknock and my phone beeping and I looked and he'd sent me a nice message from the off. Because when you're on the, uh, these apps, like it's the same thing most people would send you. It's like a job interview. But he had, uh, he was definitely had a lot of charm. So we hit it off. The messages were going back and forward and we were having a great laugh through the messages. Um, yeah, he was very charming, I'd say. And the early days then of your relationship, you got together. What were they like? What was he like? Well, I remember meeting him the first time face to face and I actually didn't know whether I fancied him or not because he didn't look like his profile picture. I thought he was a really nice guy. We hit it off. He was so charming and very, very funny. But I thought he looked a lot older than his profile picture. So I was just chatting, getting to know him and we just took him from there. 
I think some of your friends, and the one thing I noticed about this documentary, which is really powerful, is you've got such great friends. And from the get-go, though, he was almost trying to divide you from your friends by sending them text messages. Tell me about that. Well, I think he was so eager to meet all my family and friends. And I probably wasn't aware at the time he was asking everybody for their phone numbers. So he he seemed like a really friendly guy. And which everybody did. Everybody thought, wow, like, this is it. The two of us were crazy about each other. I think sometimes you feel like it's too good to be true. But yet in that case, actually it wasn't. I thought, oh, these things, actually these real life fairy tales can come true. You know, I do believe in love, like most women, I think. Yeah. And we all want to believe it's out there. Did your friends initially try to warn you? Not at the start, no. I think they were just really happy for me. I remember once my friend, after I think we were suspicious then, I think she said I didn't like that. When I found you, it was like a three-way conversation. He always wanted to be involved. Mm-hmm. So she was suspicious of that, but I wasn't because he had done that with his own friends when I was in the car and he'd want me to join in too. But my friend said she thought that was a bit suspicious, yeah. Now, before you met him, you'd had cancer, hadn't you? Tell me about that. And you'd had treatment. Yeah, I was sick in 2016. Sometimes it's actually like, even when I say it out loud, it's actually hard to believe sometimes still. It's every girl's worst nightmare is hearing them words, cancer. And yeah, it was so bad even to hear them words where when I got the diagnosis, the full diagnosis after my scans, it had spread to a lot of places. And the doctors didn't give me much hope of survival. They said that we can just make her comfortable. So I never believed I was always such a positive person that I just never believed that I would ever get sick because I was always healthy, going to the gym. I love exercising. You know, I have such a healthy lifestyle. So I honestly didn't believe that I would get sick. So you were diagnosed with breast cancer, were you, Nicola, before you met him? That's right, yeah. I had breast cancer and... Obviously, the cancer had spread to different parts of my body. So, yeah, it was obviously at the time, I definitely thought that was the worst time of my life. I didn't think it could ever get any worse. So, listen, when you hear about coercive control, you start off by saying he seemed the one. You were mad about him. You loved him. Isn't that right? That's right. I did love him, yeah. So when did the abuse start and how did it begin? The way I would explain it is slowly but surely. At the start, he was Prince Charming. The perfect guy. The perfect guy for me. Funny, kind, helpful. He saw me the fairy tale. And I remember thinking, am I glad I didn't settle or any of the other guys that come into my life before this because this is this is the type of love I've been waiting on. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. But like, just for people listening, he ended up sending you, I think in the end, about 30,000 text messages, sometimes 600 
a day. That's right, yeah. I mean, when did it get that bad? And how long did you put up with that for? I think you go into shock when things happen to you. I think I had never experienced anything like this in my whole life. But I definitely think it was when I had got diagnosed with cancer again after I had been pregnant for five months. It was horrendous decisions I had to make and I was so afraid for me and the baby at this stage. So I think after I had the baby, the real Paul Moody came out. It was bad enough before, but little did I know what was to come. That was Nicola who spoke to me about coercive control and she is a truly brave woman for speaking out. Well, the legendary Pat Jennings played in goals for Northern Ireland and a statue of him was unveiled in November in his hometown of Newry. He told me about where it all started. I actually started playing soccer in the street league here in Newry whenever I was 11 playing in under-19 league. And my brother played and that's the same team. We went under the street name. We adopted famous names. We were Shamrock Rovers and you had the Arsenal and so on and <laughs> so on. So, but that was where it started. And, and unbelievably, I mean, going back, that was 76. The local council named Jennings Park after where football started for me, which was another fantastic honour. So um, I'm well looked after in this town now with a statue in Jennings Park. And Liam Brady also said on the day that you're a really special person, that you deserve to be knighted for what you have done for charity. I know you've already got an OBE and a CBE, but tell me a little about some of the work that you have done, Pat. And I've got a KSG as well, (gasps) a knighthood from the Pope, which is fantastic as well. I got that in 1999 for services to charity and that. But I've been involved here for uh, Cooperation Ireland trying to get the two communities together way back 35, 36 years. I started that with a great Derek Dugan, him being Protestant, being Catholic. And uh, I've been working for them since on the community stuff. I've been involved with the Irish FA and McDonald's on the grassroots programme for 17, 18 years. Gone round the country acknowledging people that do fantastic work in, in uh, grassroots football. You've had such an amazing career, actually, Pat. And obviously you knew some of the great and the good. I, of course, came across you first in my first job on TV as a researcher on This Is Your Life with Eamon Andrews when we did your life. And I always remember George Best came on and spoke so beautifully and warmly about you. You got on great, you and Georgie Best, didn't you? Yeah, well, George and myself uh, were starting the international team the same night away back 1964. And uh, I hadn't met George. I hadn't played against him at that stage. He was just breaking into the team at uh, Man United. And I was playing for Watford at the time. So I got picked from Watford at 18, just 18. And George was 17. So, as I say, we'd never met. But then once I seen him playing, once we started training, you thought, oh, what a talent this kid's going to be. <laughs> and uh, that's what he, you know, it's just whenever I look back now, I can't believe that from his point of view, that he didn't manage to play in some of the well, the World Cup games for us, you know. Mm-hmm. Whenever we qualified in 82, I think Billy Bingham did look at him at that time and and didn't think that he was up to it. But, I mean, even if he had played for a half an hour, I think it would have been a brilliant job for us. And the 86 World Cup, he was probably just a bit too old at that stage. But 
Uh, it's my one regret for him that such a fantastic player didn't get to play in the World Cup with us. How good was he, Pat? Fantastic. I mean, all the players I played against, the, the Maradonas and people they got, uh, I mean, for me, George was number one. And I just a lovely lad with it as well, like, you know. So, as I say, it's, it's just disaster for him, the way his life turned out. And whenever I look back over the years, I think maybe Man United, had they, not, had they been playing at, at uh, the highest level every week, he won the European Cup with them. And had they been up there playing at that level every week, he would have been part of it. You know, maybe he wouldn't have had the drink problem that he had, but they finished up, I think, in the second division, um, Man U. So I often think back, had they been right up there where they should have been every week playing in Europe, every other week, that George would have been with them. You know, mm. he had a fantastic reputation, and I think that got to him as well whenever he couldn't beat two or three players and score a goal or a couple of goals in matches. So that was a big disappointment for him. He, he always talked about that. And I, I knew what it was like then for me. I was lucky enough to be the only, well, the only present-day goalkeeper in the minute to have won the Football Riders Player of the Year and the PFA Player of the Year. And I know then the sort of pressures that that, that brought to you, having that reputation. Mm-hmm. Your home players knew what you were doing every week. Uh, but whenever you went away to all the grounds, Man United, Liverpool and that, all of a sudden people are looking at you, oh, this is the football of the year. So your, the levels of your game had to step up again. So I knew what George talked about whenever he said about the pressures that he had to live with every game he played. So mm-hmm. that was it. You've had so many career highlights, Pat. Was it the 1,000 club games, the World Cups? I mean, what do you like? Apart from your charity work, what do you like to be remembered for? Well, I was so lucky. I mean, as you say, Maria, I mean, I won my first FA Cup medal in 1967, uh, Spurs v Chelsea. And in those days, the FA Cup was, it was, that was the only competition that was shown around the world. So for us in those days, that was the, the competition that you had to win, the glamour competition. So, but then I was so lucky. I mean, I won that a couple of times. Uh, we won it again, 79, with all the Irish lads, which was unbelievable. I mean, that'll never happen again. Pat Rice and Sammy Nelson from Northern Ireland, David O'Leary, Liam Brady, Frank Stapleton, and John Devine was a, he was a extra man for us as well. And we had two extra players playing for Man U, played for the North as well, Sammy McElroy and Jimmy Nicholl. So if you can imagine that in the cup final and, and as I said, said earlier, the personal thing was winning that uh, football of the year twice. For Northern Ireland to qualify for two World Cups, 82 against Spain and go out and beat, uh, in Spain and beat the host nation one day on the night. Uh, and then somehow managed to qualify four years later for, for 86 World Cup. What a performance by the team and, and myself, six clean sheets. And then to finish up playing against Brazil on my 41st birthday. I mean, I just I couldn't have written the script for that. And that was legendary goalkeeper Pat Jennings speaking to me in November. Well, thanks so much for joining me this morning for this look back at 2023 and some of the conversations I really enjoyed with my guests. We're back on air next Sunday morning with an interview with George Clooney about his new movie, The Boys in the Boat. Today's programme was produced by the series producer, Dear Denny Line. Elaine Connan was our broadcast coordinator and Mark Dwyer was on sound. I'll leave you this morning with a song from Steel Wall. This is Glory Days.
Rest your weary bones On my sofa, me Elsa Gosha We can't sip tea From a scaldy mug 